You were never out of the fight. You were created for a time such as this. And you are now preparing to be sent into battle. God is calling you to be his disciple, to be formed in virtue and holiness. He has appointed you as an ambassador of his kingdom. To go and represent him to his people. And he's enlisted you as a soldier of Christ. To be sent out to fight for the good in this world. You are not made to make excuses. time for you to take extreme ownership for your life, for all of your life. It's time to rise up and finally be the man or woman you were created to be. Follow God. Lead others. And never surrender. It is time to begin seeking excellence. What is going on, Zach? It's great to have you with me today, man. First of all, Nathan, I just want to recognize your line of questioning is transphobic. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. It's going well, man. Uh, I just throw that in there. Your listeners may or may not have heard that uh, recently, sure but just have. a couple of days ago. Yeah, yeah. Senator Hawley questioning a University of California, Berkeley law school professor. Um, and it just it just went totally off the rails. So. But I'm doing well, Nathan. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, absolutely, man. So we, you know, recorded a little bit uh, ago, talking about some racism, talking about my, you know, kind of background story. And we paused at such a pivotal time in American history in we our did. own stories, uh, right there at, at 2020. So I'm excited to dive back into that today. Um, but first, you know, we'll get back. We'll get more into your kind of life story. We'd love to talk about your conversion there later on. But just give us a brief intro into the life of of Zach Crippen. Brief intro into the life. I am a podcaster as well. I work with you at Hallow Nathan. So that's how we met each other. And when we found out that we were both podcasters, we thought, well, we gotta do a little uh we gotta do a little collab. Um so my podcast is called Creedal, C-R-E-E-D-A-L. I used to call it Creedal Catholic, which was a play on words, uh Cradle Catholic. Because I'm not a Cradle Catholic, uh, like yourself, Nathan. I am a convert. I came into the Catholic Church in 2015 at the Easter Vigil. Best decision I ever made. Uh, it was absolutely life-changing, as uh, I think most Catholic converts uh, would agree. And uh, it has literally reoriented, reoriented everything about my life and the way I see the world and the choices that I make. Uh, which is not to say that uh, I am a flawless human being. Obviously, there are there's a lot more work that God has to do on me, but I would be in a very different space uh, if I was not a Catholic. And so I just give thanks to God every day that I am and that I'm here. But uh, I work for Hallow, like I mentioned, and uh, am the husband to Sally, and we have a large and growing family. So a seven-year-old, a five-year-old, a three-year-old, and a one-year-old, and they keep us very, very busy, but it's a ton of fun. I love it. That's great, man. And of course, I don't know if you've been able to pick up in the background, this is a lawn mowing day here at our apartment. It does sound like you got some stuff going on there, yeah. Yeah, which is super fun. You know, we've had a number of technical issues and challenges coming along this whole time, so uh and, and even scheduling conflicts like this has just been a an absolute hassle um but that I mean, we, usually we, means that we, we recorded part stuff. one we recorded part one i think a month ago right yeah something which like is, that which so is wild yeah. yeah in person which was really fun 
Um, but yeah, that's great, miss, man. So sure. I appreciate that. You didn't mention your, you know, one of the best things about you, which some would say is one of the worst things about you. What is that? I don't even know. You spent time in our, uh, the greatest air force in the world. Oh, that's true. Yeah. Uh, I mean, spoken like a true army guy, Nathan, but, uh, yes, I did. I was active duty air force for seven years and reserves for three years, uh, as an air force officer and only recently have, uh, have hung up the boots, so to speak, and, uh, am no longer, no longer in the reserves in a meaningful sense that my, my out processing is still sort of happening. It takes a while, as you know, for the paper pushers to, uh, get the paper pushed all the way, but, uh, but yeah, I've, I've, I've hung it up, Nathan submitted <laughs> my retirement. That's great. 10 year retirement. It. So thank you for sharing. Thank you for sharing. <laughs> thank, yeah. thank you for and bringing thank that you for up. Your service. <laughs> thank you for yours, Nathan. Thank you. You're welcome. So let's do, so let's jump back into 2020, man. I'm most interested to kind of start with, you know, since we've kind of switched, uh, switched the tables around here, I'm, I'm really interested in your perspective of what 2020 was like for you, because I think we had similar experiences. I remember you kind of, um, from what you described to me, not, this is not your words, but how I interpret what you said to me, you kind of became like a BLM, like simp there for a second in 2020. Is that right? Like you had some type of, uh, like growing empathy towards BLM after seeing the George Floyd video. Yeah, I think I was going to say saying that I became a simp probably over simplifies things a little bit, if you will. Uh, but I I definitely think, uh, thank you. (laughs) I'm really good at the dad jokes. Um, by the way, speaking of dad jokes, the other day I told my daughter that I, I said, Lucy, I must ask you a question. And then she responded, I kid you not, deadbeat. She looked at me and she said, you can shave it for later. <laughs> I was like, that's pretty solid. Pretty solid. That is good. All right. But yeah, good so 2020, I, uh, it is definitely true that I found myself in 2020 sympathizing with some of the stated aims of the Black Lives Matter group. I would even go further than that, Nathan, and say that even today, I sympathize with some of the stated aims of Black Lives Matter, but in, in a very narrow sense. And sympathize with the way in which they state those things, not necessarily the ways in which they actually mean and implement and carry out those things. But can we like maybe just very briefly like recap my sort of political evolution before we get to the 2020? Yeah, I think that would be great. So I grew up in a Republican family, card carrying, like very socially conservative Republican family. Uh, The Democrats were the bad guys. The Republicans were the good guys. I am oversimplifying here as well. Like my parents, uh, my mom has since passed away. My parents were good people. Uh, We were never, we were always raised to love everyone, to treat everyone with charity, as we, of course, should. But, um, you know, Democrats were the party of death, and Republicans were the party of life. Uh, Democrats were the party of high taxes, and Republicans were the party of um, business and prosperity. And that, like, roughly speaking, that's just the the dichotomy that I grew up with. Um, over time, obviously, I, you know, I grew up and began to see the world through, uh, through my own eyes, informed by my own education. And uh, that, that viewpoint uh, was no longer the case. Uh, I started to, to recognize that I think on certain matters, I was very skeptical of the sort of Republican establishment view towards things, especially as it relates to uh, economic policy. Um, and especially as it relates to sort of like friendliness with, uh, with big business. Um, and uh, I think we saw some of the consequences of that. And for example, the 2008 financial crisis. So basically, that was, that was uh, I think, in part, at least a formative event in the shaping of my own political consciousness. But as I got older, uh, also just recognizing like these are friends that I have who are Democrats. We don't see eye to, we don't see eye to eye on everything. And so recognizing that there is a gray in between the black and white 
uh, was, I think, probably a, a good and healthy thing for me to recognize. I think a lot of people go through that that phase. They're raised to believe one thing and to see the world in black and white, and then they they grow up and realize, oh, this world's not quite as neat and tidy as I thought it was. We can't put people into boxes perhaps as easily as we thought we could. And I found myself um, being really frustrated with uh, the Republican Party in the sort of 2012 to 2016 era. I remember uh, strongly supporting the Romney candidacy in 2012 and being disappointed when he lost to uh, Barack Obama in, in Obama's re-election campaign. I remember I was there, I was in grad school and I was at a uh, at an election returns party with mostly conservatives, but a few uh, a few progressives in the mix. And uh, it was it was a pretty it was a pretty dismal uh, dismal affair by the end of the night. We were like, ah, oh, darn it, it's not going to work out, is it? We don't have a chance. Um. So that was me in 2012. Uh, I wouldn't say like a dyed-in-the-wool Republican, but I was a registered Republican. And then in between 2012 and 2016, there's obviously an awful lot that happened because that is the that is the the four years that gave rise to Trump. And by like 2014, I think it was pretty evident that things were were going in that direction. I did not vote for Trump in 2016. I voted for uh, what I, who I now affectionately refer to as uh, Evan McMuffin because that was Trump's name for him. But Evan McMullen was the independent uh, presidential candidate in 2016 who was basically trying to protect the country from Trump. Uh, so I voted for uh, McMullen, and uh, I forget who I voted for. The oh, I think in the primary uh, that year I voted for Rubio. Yeah, it was Rubio in the primary, and then in the general McMullen. Uh, but I just watched with uh, just immense distaste as the Republicans ate their own, and as Trump came in proclaiming himself to be an outsider, but really he's like a, uh, you know, he's an ultra-rich uh, kleptocrat, essentially, um, who I thought was pretty obviously corrupt and certainly morally bankrupt from the beginning. And I'm not pronouncing anything about his soul, I'm just, I'm just talking about this, the fact that he's, you know, a, a serial monogamist, um, and his family obviously in tatters, uh, questionable, shady business dealings, etc. So I just thought, there's no way in good conscience I can support this person. I, by the way, still feel that way, so I'm not recanting anything on that front. I did not vote for Trump again in 2020. But what happened was, after 2016, I just found myself thinking, you know what, these Republicans, like, maybe there's not a whole lot there because they obviously abandoned all of their moral principles uh, in pursuit of this guy, Trump. I, I do, by the way, think that is largely true, uh, even today. Uh, and so I started thinking, maybe I'm actually a Democrat. Maybe I could re register and be, a, be like a moderate progressive, uh, not a moderate progressive, but a moderate Democrat, like a... a a uh, center, maybe slightly center left Democrat who is uh, a fiscal moderate, who is pro-life, who is um, who, who recognizes the need for fairly robust social safety nets, who values um, bringing people out of poverty, et cetera, et cetera. And I found myself at a point in 2016, 2017 thinking maybe I can do this. Maybe I can be a Democrat. I talked to my wife about it. I distinctly remember this at that point. I talked to my wife about this um, idea. And Sally said, no, you can never be a Democrat because the Democrats are not the party. Uh, it's impossible to, to be a pro-life Democrat, basically. And that's a major issue for us. Uh, and I thought, I don't know, maybe like maybe there maybe maybe we need to have more pro-life Democrats. Uh, and Sally was like, well, we certainly do. But it's just not you, you can't be a you can't be in the Democratic Party. And be pro-life. There's just no room for you. Every single pro-life Democrat is pushed to the margins of the Democratic Party because the mm. Democratic Party is, is so enmeshed with the, uh, the pro-abortion lobby. Um, so basically, in like 2017 timeframe, I flirted briefly with becoming Democrat because I found myself um, 
uh, I found myself disgusted with the Republican Party and had considered, although I, I don't think it's true now, but I considered the possibility that I could maybe be like a center centrist voice in the Democrats. And by doing so, I'd basically be, be protesting the moral bankruptcy of what uh, was the Republican Party, at least then, um, and being like a voice of reason to moderate the radicalness of the Democrats' worst tendencies back then. Fast forward like three years, between 2017 and 2020, I just watched the Democrats just descend further and further into complete chaos. Um, (laughs) And I think, and I think we saw this played out in 2020 and we still see it played out today. I mean, this, like I, I obviously jokingly responded to you with this, you know, line of questioning is transphobic comment at the beginning, but -hmm. that is because that was just an event that happened two days ago in which uh, Senator Hawley was engaging this law professor at Berkeley. uh, And she was asserting that men can get pregnant. And he was asserting that no men cannot get pregnant. And and somehow they're, they're just completely at odds, like metaphysically. Their metaphysical priors are so different from one another. But now this is what this is what the Democratic Party has become. They are staking their livelihood. They're staking their entire like, truth claim on something as absurd as men can get pregnant. Um, and and to, to say that's not true is to like be wildly out of step with the modern Democratic Party. So ultimately, I'm really glad that I'm not a Democrat. By the way, I'm still not a Republican. I'm not a registered Republican. I'm, I'm an independent. I think I might have said that when, when we chatted on our podcast. Yeah. Um, and I would actually say, Nathan, that I, I today find myself much more conservative than the average Republican. And, and part of that is a moral conservatism that has led me to reject and, and to continue to reject Trump. But anyway, I, I've totally monologued for like 10 minutes here, but that's like in a very brief snapshot, you know, my like last decade of political evolution. And that's uh, where I find myself today. So, yeah, no, that's super helpful. I think, yeah, it's really interesting. And we're now, I think, recently it's been more and more in the news, you know, the potential of, of Trump running again in 2024, which I've repeatedly said, in my opinion, is an absolute nightmare scenario. Yeah. Um, I think it's like worst case scenario. And I'm just like amazed at like what, you know, the, the Democrats call like, you know, Trump derangement syndrome. It, it could really go both ways, right? You have it on the left in the media, like this obsession with Trump. Yep. People literally like get convulsions, right? When they think about him or talk about him. And then you have on the right this like obsession with him just being like the absolute greatest thing that ever was. And uh like this like um salvific, you know, like figure <laughs> in human history. Yeah. It's like the second coming of Christ uh for the United States. I mean, you're not even you're, yeah, you're not even joking. There's that no. um who's that that pastor in Dallas? I think it's Jeffrey somebody. Um, but he was, he was was just all aboard the Trump train in both 2016 and 2020. And I remember that his church, I think it's like first Baptist in Dallas or something, although I don't want to impugn if there's a, if there's a different first Baptist, that's an actual like Christ centered church. Uh, I'm sorry. So, uh, I think it's Jeffress, Robert Jeffress, actually, I think it's his name. Oh, Um, that sounds right. But he, uh, his church, I remember it made, uh, make America great again into an anthem. And I saw part of the video and I was like, and make America great again. And there's this like robed Baptist choir singing this song. And I was just like, this is the definition of idolatry. And this will (laughs) get us nowhere. Not only will it get us nowhere, this will, this will put us in a very bad, bad place. Bro. And so many people act like he's, yeah. I, I mean, we have this kind of nationalism that can go too far, right? Like all nationalism gets criticized by the left. And then on the right, you do have these extremists who, like almost act like the United States is the the new Israel, you know, <laughs> it's like, yeah. we're like God's chosen people. Right. And it's like, no dude, like we don't, we don't deserve this prosperity. Like if anything, we deserve much worse than what we currently have. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, it's pretty wild. But yeah, so I think it's really interesting. So I appreciate you sharing your story. Um, I'm interested to talk about more topics and where you think you might align uh, more with the Democratic Party than the Republican Party, you know, a little bit more down the line. But let's jump back to you, uh, you simping in 2020. I would love to, you know, get into to some of that with uh, whatever Patrice Colors or whatever her name is, the one of the co-founders of, of BLM. You know, I know you had her poster on your wall there for a little bit, you know. In, That's in right. Yeah. And the, uh, uh, I think you were a big fan of the the Mary holding George Floyd uh, painting. Oh my goodness! Oh my goodness! I do <laughs> um, want to clarify for your listeners that I did not have a poster of Patrice Cullors on my wall. That's uh, oh okay, definitely okay. Yeah, definitely no, false. That is, that is important um, to clarify. <laughs> oh my goodness! But but this some of this like really cringe uh, religious iconography that features George Floyd is just it's yeah. pretty sacrilegious stuff. I mean, the um, street art that figures that features him is is yeah. wrong. <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? <laughs> like excessive. But yeah, so let's talk about that, man. So like I've shared, you know, before my experience with, with 2020 and uh, I think it was just very easy to get caught up as it always is in the emotions of it all. Right. And I think when you're seeing that, uh, you know, constantly, right. When you're seeing these celebrities and athletes weeping, you know, I always point back to that. I always forget his name. I want to say it's Dom something. He, he's a Mets player who just like cried on TV about how nobody cares about black lives and, and when black people get killed. And I'm like, literally the entire world is talking about this like career criminal who was, you know, who died in a police hold that was authorized by that police department at the time. Largely, potentially, at least we know potentially at least largely due to his own drug use, you know, the use of drugs that restricts your breathing. Um, and everybody's talking about it. And these dudes yeah. are on TV weeping, you yeah. know, crying about how nobody cares. And I'm just like, I don't understand that. But yeah, tell me about, you know, obviously you're uh, a, a cisgender, straight white male. So like, oh, it's true. Yeah. The social Take team, everything but... I say with a grain of salt because I'm <laughs> yeah, a cis so, white male for sure. So your opinion is irrelevant to most people, but I'm curious yes. as of what your experience was like during that time. Because I know you even did some podcasts on it. And, I did. Yeah. We've kind of talked about those and like what you now think about, you know, the content or kind of where you were at in your headspace at that time. Yeah, I think I mentioned on the the episode we did on my channel that uh, I had Gloria Purvis on the on the show yeah. to talk exactly about this because because Gloria was very vocal uh, around the time of the well she still is but that's when she really started being especially vocal about uh, race and racial justice. I think as a Christian, Nathan, my starting point is to be open to any accusations of racism and bias and inequality um, because as Christians we we recognize that humans are by uh, humans have fallen natures right and so all of us are capable of immense sin mm. and so we don't we don't start our metaphysical prior in this case is not that we start from a place that men are angels but rather that men are fallen and so when someone claims to have been mistreated I think my tendency is to believe them absent uh you know evidence to the contrary and that's not to say that i that i am in favor of uh you know, of guilty before proven innocent i'm not i'm not talking about a a um a criminal court of law obviously we should presume innocence and not guilt but i'm talking about when someone when someone tells me their experience and they say i've been systemically mistreated i feel like i've been disadvantaged by the system my my first impulse i think is to recognize 
oh, there could very well be something here. And I think that I should listen to them and be open to their account and analyze it critically. Uh, and by the way, being open to it doesn't mean that I'm excused from analyzing it critically. I think we should always analyze things critically. But I think like my starting point is um, to be uh, receptive towards those claims rather than dismissive of those claims. Um, and I think that's a healthy starting point for, for everyone to have. So, you know, 2020, we've, we obviously, is, I mean, it seems like we, uh, every, every couple of years we have uh, some kind of very high profile killing at the hands of police. Um, and it becomes, you know, I think about, uh, 2014, right. Ferguson, Missouri, Michael Brown, yep. I think of the, the firestorm that I think that was the birth of BLM, right. It was in 2014. Yeah. So it actually started right after Trayvon Martin the year before, but, um, Oh, right. Right. Which was in, yeah, it was either 2012 or 2013 Trayvon Martin died. And then, yeah. Yeah. In 2014 was, yeah. In August of 2014, I believe it was, uh, Mike Brown was killed and that like really, that's like what really, really took it off for sure. Right. And so, yeah, to your point, this Trayvon Martin and Michael Brown, and it seems again, like every year or two in the summer, uh, there is a killing at the hands of police. Uh, and it launches this national conversation about race and racial injustice and uh, inequality and in policing, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, I wasn't... Um, I wasn't immune to any of those conversations previously. I remember watching like the Ferguson protests and trying to understand what had happened in Ferguson in 2014, et cetera, for example. But 2020 was, was much more prominent and uh, everyone's everyone's stuck. If you're not out protesting on the streets, you're stuck at home in your house because we're in, you know, COVID lockdown, et cetera. And yeah. so I think I just had more time to like reflect on this and read up on some things. Um, my company, uh, not Hallow at the time, a uh, super woke company, they were like, we'll, we'll buy you all these uh, books on critical race theory. And so I was like, yeah, I mean, I'll never turn down free books. Let me get these books and just see, see what they see what they'll do. So it was like White Fragility by Robin DiAngelo. A and classic. Stamped by Ibram Kendi. Um, I think there was another, another Ibram Kendi one in there. So there, were, there was a collection. Uh, I, think, yeah, I think that was one of them. Yeah. Also, um, uh, that was huge in 2020. What's the one that was turned into a uh, Michael B. Jordan movie about the the pro bono legal clinic in the South? Oh, um, um, Just Mercy. Yeah, yeah. Just Mercy was another one. So like I got all That's these books movie. and I was like, yeah, very good movie. I love the movie. Yeah. Uh, so I got all these books and I was like, yeah, I'll read this. And so I was, you know, sifting through them. White Fragility, by the way, one of the worst books I've ever read by far. <laughs> it's just absolutely horrible. I but I was reading it like, again. Read it yet. But, Again, like my default position on this is like, I should be, I should be open to these claims of injustice. I think that's a a Christian position. I'm open to these claims. And so, um, so I'm reading this and like dissecting it and I'm listening to voices and it's hard to find in the, in the vast world of the internet, it's hard to find voices to trust, but I like Gloria Purvis. I still like Gloria Purvis to this day. And she was very prominent on these issues. And I, so I had her on the show just to talk through her experience as a black woman in America. Uh, I, as you, as you astutely pointed out and recognized Nathan, am not a black woman in America. And so, so I didn't think that I was the best person to judge about a black woman's experience. So I wanted to talk to Gloria about that. And, uh, it's not as if Gloria is the only person I talked to. Obviously I had a lot of these conversations, but Gloria yeah, was one of the, was one of the public ones. Cause she was on my podcast and in conversations like that, I learned that there, uh, there is a widespread feeling of disadvantage, a widespread perception that there is uh, some sort of systemic bias uh, at varying levels uh, to varying degrees um, that is perceived by black people in this country. Um, and that makes me deeply sad because I don't want anyone in this country to feel like mm-hmm. they are being slighted or systematically disadvantaged. It also makes me confused because when I try to look at the data, I don't see that reflected in the data. 
Um, and so, for example, like Heather McDonald, who's at uh, the Manhattan Institute and has written the Wall Street Journal, has done a lot of work on policing and violent policing and whether or not it's actually true that um, black men are more likely to encounter violence at the hands of police. I certainly don't dispute that that the police used excessive force in the death of George Floyd. Uh, I think that is uh, d- demonstrably true. Um, but I do think it's disputable. Uh, it's a, at the very least debatable that uh, this is a systemic problem that happens to black men at a greater rate than any other race. Um, uh, the examples that Gloria, I remember Gloria using on my podcast were all historical examples that were certainly grievous examples of injustice and systemic racism, but um, not ones that are perpetuated today. I think redlining, for example, is a, is a good um, sort of illustrative case uh, in which redlining was horrible, but redlining doesn't happen anymore. Now, the argument, is, as I understand it, is that the consequences of, of redlining persist today and that may very well be true, and I'm very open to that argument. I think it's probably, I think it probably does have truth to it. Um, but then the answer about how to fix that is the next thing we need to talk about, and uh, it's not at all evident to me that the way to fix systematic disadvantage is to do systematic sort of advantaging, um, and I think that's where uh, that's where we often end up. And then the final thing is just to recognize the role that the media plays in each of these incidents. And realize how insidious it is to be just just stoking and provoking race wars because that's exactly what that's exactly what has happened for the past two years. It's been especially obvious. I'm sure it was happened before that, and I was less immune to it. I mean, less less aware of it. Right. I remember, for example, after Trayvon Martin, uh, that's the first instance of which I'm aware that the the ethnic category of white Hispanic became widespread. But there was just such a calculated yeah. Yeah. and coordinated effort to paint George Zimmer, George Zimmerman as like a racist white man that he was just described everywhere as a white Hispanic. And I was just like, what is a white Hispanic? I don't know <laughs> what that. Does that mean? <laughs> uh, that's very, that's like a really strange category. Uh, so that was like, you know, I noticed that way back in 2012 yeah. or 2013. But I think in the past two years, what the media has done um, with race in America, is just so, it's, it's just so insidious and it's so frustrating. And it's, it's really disheartening to see how people who I think once got along and could see each other as a brother and sister in Christ or just a brother and sister in their neighborhood, even if they didn't have a shared faith, now look at each other with suspicion because uh, we, I think, are being are being trained to hate each other. It's really, really sad to me. It is. Yeah, it's incredibly sad, man. And I, I don't understand how more people aren't able to see that that's what's happening. You know, like the biggest thing I always struggle to understand um whether I was if I'm listening to somebody like Gloria or somebody else, you know, these athletes and things that I talk about who describe the experience of black Americans in America in 2022 is this just happened recently. I don't know if it was on The View or some other bullshit show where they were talking about how somebody made the comparison. Man, where did this come from? Somebody just very recently I saw it on uh, either Matt Walsh or Ben Shapiro this week. Somebody made the comparison and said that blacks in America today are experiencing similar things to Jews in the Holocaust. And like, I think it goes back to, it's wild, right? Like it's hilarious and like terrifying. Very similar, I think, to the, you know, what you talked about earlier with the Senator Hawley interview and being told like this line of questioning is transphobic to say that women are the only people who can get pregnant. Like it's just, there's a number of conversations today in almost every topic that if like if you listen to what the most extreme left says about that topic like you have to legitimately question whether or not they actually live in reality or if they're on like extreme psychedelic drugs 
or they're just like utterly brainwashed because that's like the only thing that makes any sense right like it, it just like none or or if they're like possessed like when it comes to abortion and things like that like a lot of times they legitimately seem possessed when they're out there like screaming in the streets like we love killing babies which actually happens you know like you see those videos if you're on social media and follow any conservative accounts you see these videos every day of this like just absolutely wild stuff and exactly what you talked about earlier kind of going back to your journey from the you know uh, dabbling in the democratic party there or flirting with joining it like i grew up you know and was a registered democrat at 18 until this past year when i registered republican finally and it's like it, like you, you can't even recognize what it once was, you know, and that's what I feel like has also happened within the black community, which is extremely disappointing to me. And one of the things I find most frustrating with everything you talked about, too, with in regards to redlining and some of these other really common examples, like the effects of Jim Crow and all these, you know, uh, Black Wall Street often gets brought up and like all these different things that happened, right, that have set black people back throughout American history we have such an obsession with talking about the past that we can never address current problems or really create a better future for ourselves because nobody ever, and I get so frustrated, I rag on you know, the Al Sharptons and Jesse Jacktons and Maxine Waters of the world who, who bring up all this old stuff and, and live through it and actually actively know that it is nonsensical to act like life is harder in America today than it was in the 19th. 40s 50s and 60s like they know that for an absolute fact and yet they perpetuate this lie because they're race baiters and they make a lot of money from doing it but it just destroys the black community when we know that if you taught young black americans hey wait till you're married to have kids finish high school you know don't break the law and have a criminal record and you are almost guaranteed to not live in poverty for the rest of your life you know like if we just taught that but you can't teach any type of personal responsibility and that's where I think I see things very differently from uh, Gloria Purvis and a lot of black Catholics, even though Gloria and I, I and I respect her and love a lot of the stuff that she does because I think she takes the most reasonable ap- approach for somebody who seems to be, at least from my understanding, the mo- like pretty pro-BLM as a Catholic. I think she takes a very reasonable approach to everything else where you see most black Catholics who are very pro-BLM are very pro LGBTQ stuff. They're very pro, um, you know, anything that's basically against the church. <laughs> they like basically like just go off the rails and are totally against the church. And so I definitely respect her in that. But where we don't agree is that I can't get behind the idea that there's no personal responsibility for black people in America in 2022. And that we that should not be our leading message to young black people. And one of the things that really impacted me And that I would love to interview this dude. And I never, I don't really listen to him as much anymore, but I'd love to know what he thinks about BLM and all these things. But there's a guy named Dr. Eric Thomas, who's a motivational speaker uh, from Detroit and lived a very hard life, was homeless at one point or at several points in his life and is very successful now. And he just, you know, encourages people. Everything he talks about, I'm like, I don't know if he's a, a Republican or not, but I'm like, everything in his values is conservative. You know, it's pick yourself up, take ownership, take control of your life, get after it. He addresses the fact that like racism exists. It's probably always going to exist, but I'm not going to let it stop me from doing what I feel like I'm called to do, which should be our message. Like, that's what we need. But that's not what we get from these older leaders in the black community. We get, oh, you're a victim. All this stuff is set up against you. And it's like, you can't convince me. And maybe I just haven't met 
the the black people who have had to overcome that much racism in their life to this point. But I've met a lot of people in my life and I've been a black American for 29 years now. And I can tell you that while I was made fun of for my skin color in school, had my setbacks, think I had encountered racist, uh, you know, ranger instructors and all kinds of things. I still got my tab. I still graduated from college. Yeah, I still got to the starting point that I felt like put me on equal footing with many of my white peers and peers of all races. And it was up to me whether I excelled or performed below, you know, what would it really incur success in my life. And, and that's what I feel like is always missing, you know, and I get exceptionally frustrated with those people who just constantly just create this victim mentality that leads to nothing. Yeah, I think all of that's true. We haven't really talked about uh, BLM uh, yet, but I think we should just be clear. And I know you've talked about this on your show, so this is not a surprise to uh, your listeners, if you would agree with me. But uh, I mean, BLM is a complete joke, the the organization, oh, right? Yeah. So I mentioned that they're, I mentioned they have stated goals with which I agree. For example, I'm, a, I'm on their website right now, blacklivesmatter.com slash about. We affirm the lives of black, queer, and trans folks, disabled folks, undocumented folks, folks with records, women in all black lives. Uh, yeah, I definitely affirm those people's lives. <laughs> There's no, right. I don't take issue with any of that. We're working for a world where black lives are no longer systematically targeted for demise. Yeah, that's a, definitely a good thing. I don't know where that happens today outside of places where uh, slavery is still an issue in some African states, for example. But I, that's definitely a good thing to shoot for. We affirm our humanity. Yeah, that's good. We should do that. We affirm our contributions to the society. Well, we should affirm the good ones. And we affirm our resilience in the face of deadly oppression. I mean, I guess I genuinely don't know what type of deadly oppression they're talking about there. But yeah, resilience in the face of deadly oppression is a good thing. So I can affirm, <laughs> I can affirm that as well. Right. So what I mean is like they have, they have statements here with which you can agree. And then you, you dig just a little bit beneath the surface and you see the Marxist underpinnings and the uh, aiming for the dissolution of the nuclear family. Uh, you see uh, metaphysical claims that are completely at odds with those of the Catholic Church, for example. And that's when you say, okay, yeah, no way. Absolutely not. And then you go even deeper than that, Nathan, and you see that this has actually just been a vehicle for the personal wealth of Patrice Cullors and her, her fellow founders of BLM yeah. so that she can have her $14 million mansions and everything. And you just think, okay, this is this is just this is entirely a racket. This is crazy. Right. And another thing, too, that, that you brought up earlier is this fact that this happens just like every few years. I, I think I compare this a lot of times and there's so many things like I've been really reflecting on this. I want to do a whole episode one time on the just like logical inconsistencies of the left. Right. Um, but there's like the same playbook. Right. Gets used over and over again. And the, the thing that I think is most comparable to, to BLM's kind of like 15 minutes of fame every like one to three years is uh, gun violence. I think it's it's so interesting that throughout the year, every year, an unarmed black man or woman is killed by the police, just like unarmed white people and Hispanic people and Asian people get killed by the police. But just like in a similar way, all throughout the year, every year, there's mass shootings throughout the country. Why is it that we hear about the same ones within two to three months of each other? It's all you hear about. It's all that's talked about. And then you'll go a year where you can't name a single mass shooting that's happened in the U.S. Nobody can name anybody or, or I mean, maybe one. I, I think I remember seeing like maybe one story that was really national news of an unarmed black person being killed by the police this year. But you can name four from 2020. You know what I'm saying? 2020 was the year of Ahmaud Aubrey. It was the year of George Floyd. It was the year of Breonna Taylor. 
And I'm trying to remember the other dude that had the knife in uh, like Milwaukee, I want to say. Jacob Blake, I think. Jacob Blake was that year. Yeah. And we look right like that. And I didn't pre- I didn't prep that or nothing. We just <laughs> straight up, you can remember those yep. four, right? Yep. And then it's like, oh, name one in 2021. I can't. And and name one name one unarmed white person ever <laughs> killed by the police unjustly. They get arrested for doing that too. Police officers do and get their you know get fired and and go to prison for killing unarmed white people un- unfairly. Name one that's ever died. And the fact that people can't take that basic information and at least with that like question, like how do we know? Like that's the same. It's the same like confusion that i've had from the trans stuff to the vaccine stuff to um you know immigration things like that like the open borders it's like there's always like just these like obvious things that are like maybe the intentions aren't as pure as your general not even radical leftists because i think those people have just like utterly lost their mind but there's so many people who would consider themselves like moderate left that buy into these things and are much more radical like they endorse things that are much more radical than they realize Right, like a lot of these like pro-choice Catholics who like just believe women should have the right to choose. It's like you don't actually believe, like you would not support if you could see a video of a nine month being, you know, killed in the womb. Like you would not a baby that could easily survive outside of the womb. Like you would not agree with that child being killed. But they'll they'll yeah. retweet the, you know, AOCs and anti Pelosi's of the world who do believe that. And it's like, how do you actually believe that those people have your best interests at heart and are working for the good of humanity? You know, it's just like, it's so mind blowing to me. But at the same time, maybe we can go back to this. I found myself falling into it for a moment in 2020 for like, for like three days. I was like all caught up into it. I was upset and worked up about, you know, George Floyd dying and, 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 and what like the country was turning into until, uh, Candace Owens pimp slapped me back into reality. Do you remember seeing that video? I do not, but I'd be curious to, uh, actually, I think, uh, if it's, is it the, the one about George Floyd? Yeah. It's like 12 yeah, yeah. minutes. It's I, like a Facebook live. I did see did. that. Yeah. Yeah. I would be curious to know your thoughts about Candace Owens. Um, but I think like one, one thing to, to mention here, I think this is where a Christocentric Catholic worldview can really mm-hmm. help us, Nathan, because what I mentioned before about like how my default is to be open to stories of open to the truth of stories of oppression and persecution and stuff that's informed by my christian identity similarly however because and 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 that's that is informed by my christian my christian identity both about how uh we should lift up the downtrodden and because it is a fact of human existence that we are fallen people so we do oppress each other all the time similarly though my christian identity informs me again about man's sinful nature so it tells me that people are normally acting in their own interests and not in the interests of others or very, very commonly. And so I don't look at the media uncritically and say, oh yeah, here are just a bunch of good actors who are looking out for my good and for the good of the nation and for the welfare of my neighbor. Not at all. I look at these people as like cynical, self-centered, money-grabbing people who are trying to control narratives for their own good. And so everything that I view, everything of the mainstream media that I view through that lens uh, helps me or everything I view, I do view through that lens, and that helps me critically evaluate and analyze it. And by the way, this is not something that I only apply to like CNN and Fox News. I do the same, like I listen to the Daily Wire guys, mm-hmm. but I apply that same lens to them too, right? Everyone has an angle, and we need to critically evaluate wh- what that angle is and where it's coming from. There's there's one good person, right? The one good right. person, in, well, two. We'll, we'll, we'll go with Jesus and Mary's mother. I mean, hey. I'm, I'm exaggerating here. Joseph was probably free of personal sin, et cetera, et cetera. 
but the there's there's one there's one man who's perfect of his own accord, right? And that's Jesus Christ. Um, everyone who has come after Jesus has been very very fallen, and we all need Jesus. But because and we're before. fallen, we can and <laughs> and before, before. yeah, <laughs> right. Uh, and so um, yeah, so that helps us critically evaluate what is happening around us uh, and helps us be skeptical of claims, even if we're, you know, open, open to hearing them. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's, it's super interesting. I think that's, I think that's the the ticket there. And I think that's what makes it so difficult to not get judgmental because it is the Christocentric worldview that allows you to analyze those things and to understand that there's bad actors and that people are deceiving you and, and everybody's actively trying to deceive you in some way, right. To be able to have like a healthy skepticism of that. Because one thing I, I've been really just diving into in 2022 about, uh, you know, kind of, I just started reading this book, but the book's kind of been the theme of the year for me. Um, Ralph Martin is one of my favorite uh, Catholic leaders, speakers, writers uh, of our time. Um, I think he's amazing. I think he's great at being orthodox. I think he's not excessively trad. I don't think he's excess. you know what I mean? Like, I think he finds himself in like the right uh, you know, center right, which I think is kind of like the sweet spot for Catholics. Um, and he's, yeah, he's just awesome, I think. But he wrote this book, Will Many Be Saved, a while back. And I just started it um, this week. But I've been reading a lot about this kind of stuff and listening to him talk about this a lot and other people, Matt Frad. And he, there was a quote from St. John Chrysostom, Chrysostom. That's always so hard for me to say. I know. To, <laughs> today that I read that I think is applicable here. And he and I wish I had the book, but it's upstairs. But he talks about, you know, um, people who live today. Basically, that are, we we make this argument, right? Can can people be saved without hearing the gospel, or can people living in the United States now, you know, who aren't Christians or Catholics who have fallen away from their faith, like can they be saved? And Vatican II speaks very clearly about those who who knowing that the Catholic faith, the Catholic Church was established by Christ and is necessary for salvation. Um, avoid joining it or refuse to remain in it cannot be saved. That's like a quote that he quotes often over and over again throughout this book. But St. John Chrysostom once said that it's like, how can people not believe the truth? Like, how can we expect people to know the truth when they don't believe it? Or excuse me, how can we expect people to know the truth when they might not have been exposed to it or to have been explained? Because that's often kind of our argument for why we don't evangelize our family or our friends, right? It's because it's just like, well, they went to this, you know, super liberal college. They went to UC Berkeley with this crazy ass lady who was, you know, testifying before Congress and they get brainwashed. Right. And it's just like they're kind of lost and we just hope that they'll return. And we should hope that they return. We should pray for them. But like we need to use words more often than we think we do, because St. John Chrysostom says, you know, the truth is, is as apparent as the sun these days. And he said this a long time ago. This was before the internet. This was before Google. This is before people were hearing the stuff that we say all the time and ignoring it anyway. He's and he's like and and he's like you might respond, well if it's so apparent and it's so obvious, how can people not choose to believe the truth? And he's like because they do not want to. Mm-hmm. And that's the answer that a lot of people think is judgmental, it's harsh, it's whatever, and it's like that is the reality. And if you choose to continue to persist in that until the moment of your death, the church teaches that you will not go to heaven. And that is a pretty huge deal, you know? And so that's why it's so difficult. I was just listening to Taylor Marshall today, which I do probably like once a week. I don't know if you ever listen oh, well, to him. Um, I don't, no. I, I find him too divisive. Yeah, I'm not I'm not a huge fan. I kind of listen to him like my dad used to listen to Rush Limbaugh. 
You know, okay. my, my dad's a very Democrat, but listen to Rush Limbaugh because he kind of gives us. That's really funny, actually. Wow. Yeah, I know. It, it, it really is interesting. He listens to him all the time. He's a truck driver, so he listens to a lot of stuff. Yeah. But um, I was listening to him today talk about Pope Francis. And uh, obviously, he despises Pope Francis. And that's very clear. But one thing I can't understand with Pope Francis is this stuff with Joe Biden. Like, he recently had a quote where he said President Biden, when it comes to abortion, should follow his own conscience and talk to his local priests and bishop about this issue and it's like how like it, it just to me well i think pope francis has a lot of strengths i think he does some good and i don't completely revoke him or, or you know or say that he's not the pope or anything like that but to me when he does things like that he just shows like utter like an utter lack of care for joe biden's salvation i think there's no denying that when they meet behind a private room and joe biden leaves that saying he told me i'm a good catholic that i should continue doing what i'm doing that i should receive communion and all of these things like communion aside, like say he doesn't want to say, you know, don't give communion. The fact that it seems, at least from, from all exterior signs, that he has made no effort to actually call Joe Biden to repent. As the Pope speaking to the president, expecting his local parish priest to do that, it, to me is just utterly ridiculous. And it's like, how do you care for that? But we all do that. And that's the thing I think is always so important that I think the trads miss is how, how am I not doing that? You know, to turn it back and not just hate the Pope all the time, um, but to say, all right, I got to pray for the Pope to be more bold. I got to pray for the conversion of Joe Biden, but also need to be that person. I am that person of influence in some people's lives who are Catholic pro-choicers. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I, I agree with what you're saying about Pope Francis, too. And I think it extends beyond the issue of Joe Biden's soul because the the broader issue is, although I certainly think his soul is in danger, the broader issue is what people watching this exchange and watching Joe Biden be able to have that conversation with a Pope and come out, you know, unscathed, so to speak, how many people watching that think, oh yeah, this is great. So I can be a pro-choice Catholic, no problem. Um, and thus endanger their soul. So the, the bigger issue to me is the, you know, it gives rise to potentially grave scandal. We have thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, maybe, um, maybe even millions of Catholics who are watching this and thinking, okay, I guess it's fine to be a pro-choice Catholic and not, not really a problem. The Pope says it's like not a big deal. Right. And I'm not saying he said that, but the fact that, like you said, the fact that he's not explicitly saying otherwise gives rise to the impression in many people's minds that he is essentially kind of giving a wink and nod. Right. It feels very uh, Father James Martin-ish, yeah. which is oh like boy. the biggest oh problem boy. that we have. I think it, it, in, in some ways it's a bigger problem in the church than your, your German bishops who are just like apostates, right? Who have just like completely yeah. said, we're going to bless same-sex relationships the same as a marriage. Um between a man and a woman like that is very dangerous and bad obviously but at the same time it's like you can just like that's objectively like not right right but i think yeah. where we get really difficult or we get a lot of damage done is in these kind of gray areas that there's a lot of ambiguity there's like a lack of clarity and that's been like the mark of pope francis pontificate is just this lack of clarity and destructive ambiguity that i think has caused grave scandal amongst people across the united states because this is the good point that I think Taylor Marshall makes is he's like, how are you then supposed to, how are you, how am I supposed to though? And, and, and to be totally fair towards ourselves, when we look and we do take what we think Pope Francis's failures are and we apply them to ourselves, how am I supposed to go do that to my high school friends or my family members when Pope Francis himself won't do it? Like where, where does my juice, you know what I mean? It's like, where does your authority come from? If the Pope himself is like, don't do this. And what's crazy to me, what I really don't understand and where I really fear and, and, and I'm scared for Pope Francis's life 
is like the more and more I read about the saints, you know, there was bishops and cardinals and popes who did this constantly throughout history, called out kings and queens and, and these rulers that were violent most of the time. Like he doesn't have to fear like Joe Biden's not going to kill Pope Francis. You know what I'm saying? Like all he has to fear. I don't even know what he has to be afraid of, you know, but it's like, what, what do you have to fear? And these people who were like, they could have faced death, you know, you think of a St. Thomas more, right? And like what he did to not, not just like renounce the Pope and not to, um, you know, degrade marriage. Like he gave his life. And it's like Pope Francis is the mark of all of us. I feel like he's the example of all of us and our cowardice when it comes to evangelization. And, and really interesting, I think that we constantly have this divide. I don't know if you've seen this or what your thoughts are on this. But I think there's always this huge divide in this this unhealthy tension that we have between the corporal works of mercy and the spiritual works of mercy and which one is superior. And you always have people that fall into the camp of thinking one is more important than the other. When I don't think that that's what Jesus taught. No, certainly not. On the, on the Francis point, a Dominican priest recently told me a story about his seminary formation. And he had a Jesuit formator mentor who was really, really good, like one of the good Jesuits. And he had an encounter in his seminary with one of his teachers who was a Jesuit and was, we'll just say one of the bad Jesuits, if you will. And he went to his mentor and said, like, what's up with this? Why is your brother Jesuit being so, you know, essentially heretical? And the response from his mentor Jesuit was, this is, this is an appropriate way to think about the difference between the two orders the like comparing the Dominicans to the Jesuits. He said mm-hmm. the Jesuits want to maximize the the number of sinners in heaven and the Dominicans want to maximize the number of saints on earth. In other words, the the pastoral approach of the Jesuits is to say big tent, this sort of latitudinarianism, uh heaven is for everyone, no matter your sins and your foibles, come one, come all to the to the, you know, wings of God's mercy and find refuge. They tend to de-emphasize then the necessity for amendment of life. On the other hand, the Dominicans uh, emphasize, you know, the narrow way, which of course Jesus talked about himself, right? Mm-hmm. The way, uh, the way to heaven is narrow. Uh, many go by the wider path, but the way to heaven is narrow. Um, and becoming Christian and following Jesus means taking seriously His commandments. It means amendment of life. It means changing your life to conform more closely to the, to the cross, because the cross is what the Christian life looks like. And so, in Dominican spirituality, uh, you know, read Thomas for example. Uh, read the Summa on the moral life. Uh, in the Dominican spirituality, the moral life becomes actually incredibly important in the life of the Christian. Um, and it, it becoming to Christ necessitates you actually changing something that you're doing. Um, I had not heard that distinction between the Dominicans and the Jesuits before in that way, but I've always gravitated towards the Dominicans and Dominican spirituality. Yeah. Um, and I've always been frustrated. As long as I've been Catholic, I've been frustrated with the Jesuits, especially in America. I mean, there are good ones, but they are, they're harder to find. Yeah, uh, I think like you know Father Fessio. I think Father Spitzer is a Jesuit. Like the good ones tend to be really old and really young. And this whole this whole middle yeah. band of Jesuits are the kinds of people who I just look at. I look at the things they say. I look at the things that they they write. The the things that they speak about. And I just think, do you believe any of it? <laughs> you know, do you like like really is is this real to you? Because <laughs> if it is, I don't know how you say this. I mean, really, this is like honestly, this is what I think. Yeah. Um. But it does help me to, to realize maybe Father James Martin does believe it, but maybe he sees his pastoral ministry as trying to maximize the number of sinners in heaven. And that's I'm not endorsing that pastoral strategy. I actually think it's a pretty bad pastoral strategy, uh, but maybe that's what he's trying to do. 
that helps me to, to evaluate his stuff like a little bit more charitably. I still think he is a, you know, a manifest heretic in several ways. Um, that sounds uncharitable. I, I think that he needs to really work on his clarity and I think he needs to stop like walking right up to the line of church teaching and then like dipping his toe in the pool on the other side of church teaching and right. then um, and then you know acting like he didn't do anything when he knows exactly what he's doing. I think that's what he needs to stop doing. Um, but it does help me be a little bit more charitable towards him. I, I say that and then I just am like uncharitable towards him, but it helps me maybe <laughs> understand like it helps me understand his pastoral approach. Uh, even if I don't agree with it, I guess. So I don't know if that helps you at all. Right. No, absolutely. And I, I, I've heard it described on Pints with Aquinas as kind of this new, like, it's kind of the evangelization Pascal's wager, right? Like, I'd rather, I'd rather you know, go overboard and trying to evangelize and calling people to repent, you know, without obviously being judgmental. There's like, you have to be careful with that. But it's better to go over, overextend and be like, it's better to overcorrect, right? And act like the path is too small than to act like it's too wide, right? Especially if you have a voice, yeah. if you are a leader, if you're teaching people, if you're influencing other people in the Catholic world, like why not err on the side of it's smaller and harder to get into heaven than saying, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's open, it's open to everyone. But it is like, this is what, you know, Ralph Martin takes on in this book and what he spends so much of his time talking about because it is so interesting and it seems like Vatican II was just one of the many things that were just utterly misinterpreted coming out of Vatican II was this idea that just like everybody goes to heaven because the we, latitudinarianism, yeah, yeah, because we tried to try to be you know more uh, friendlier to to Protestants and to people of other religions instead of just calling them heretics and condemning them. Um, I think in a very positive way we started to recognize that perhaps and and wrestling with this question of is there this is something that the book talks about right now. Is, is there a difference between the starter of heresy, right? So, so the starter, the, the beginning, someone who says that, you know, Mary was not immaculately conceived. She's not the mother of God. You don't need to go to confession. Uh, the Eucharist is not the true presence of, of, of Jesus. Is there a difference between someone who starts that and someone who was born and raised in that faith, right? Still baptized as a Christian, was born and raised and taught that. And really never like encounters Catholicism because if you've talked to a lot of Protestants in your life, you know that a lot of them have never, don't even know what they disagree with, with Catholicism, right? They've never really been encountered with it and just think of it as one of many other things. And is there a difference? And I think that's what Vatican II really tried to wrestle with. And so many people, um, just like I've talked about this before, you know, in, in talking about Ralph McInerney's book, What Went Wrong with Vatican II, about the people who ran with um or ran against humane vitae, and especially when it came to contraception, and just utterly denied, you know, papal authority, papal teaching, and just like kind of went their own way and did their own thing after Vatican II. It's really, really wild. But this is one of them. And I think it's it's something that I've been exceptionally passionate about because not only do I feel like I was brought up in that and didn't feel like I had people in my life who actually cared about my salvation enough to try to teach me or tell me to stop, you know, sinning, and to get my life together, right? I had a number of them who did. And once you do, it's kind of like the the classic quote, if you've ever heard from like the atheist, I think he was like a comedian or something like that, who would go around and he's like, I had Christians, you know, telling me all the time that I should get baptized, that I should change my life and all this stuff. And he's like, and he was getting interviewed and he then they were they asked him, you know, does that ever annoy you? Does that bother you? And he's like, no, if you believe that, like you have an obligation to tell other people, right? Like you should be doing this. He's like, I, I feel like yeah, they care true. about me when they do it, you know? And that's yeah. where I feel like we've just we've just kind of lost that. And and you should be almost like 
this should almost be a frustration that more people didn't do that for you in your life, you know? And then that frustration yeah. should not lead you to resentment towards them, but for you to go out and do that and be that person for other people's lives, you know, to call them towards repentance. Yeah. Because if you read the saints, man, if you think about St. John the Baptist, or if you if you read the Gospels, if you read Jesus' words himself, if you read the diary of St. Faustina, right? If you read any of like things about Fatima and Marian apparitions, how people end up leaving those things and believing that hell is empty and that everybody goes to heaven is is another example of just absolute lunacy that exists in our world. I think... I think I actually, I think we we largely agree here, Nathan. But I have like I have a slightly different take on it that maybe you'll appreciate. Yeah. The so have you read uh, Balthazar's Dare We Hope That All Men Shall Be Saved? I have not. I've heard okay, about. Okay, so it. that is Bishop Barron kind of expand on it, but yeah, and that's kind of like that's one of Barton's main targets, right? Mm-hmm. Well, my friend who's on my show a lot, uh, Larry Chap, he's a theologian. Um, uh, he actually went to, he went, he was, he was teaching at the school where Annie's brother went to, went to his college. So, um, but, uh, Larry and Larry and Ralph have like kind of sparred over this exact issue previously because Martin, I think Martin denies he takes like a massa damnata approach. Like, you know, the, the masses will be damned. Um, but he, he Martin definitely denies the possibility that hell will be empty. Yeah. And I, I am not so sure. I actually am more on Balthazar's side on this. Mm. Um, I think there is an awful lot of uh, scriptural um, and exegetical work, exegetical work that sort of tries to justify the fact, you know, the assertion that hell will definitely not be empty. That sort of misses the mark. And I encourage you to read the read the Balthazar book because I think he does a really good job, like exploring that possibility. But the bigger point is that the church canonizes saints, but we never we never anti canonize people, yeah. right? Yeah, so we never say like we can confirm this person is in hell because we, you know, we prayed to them for five centuries and no miracle ever happened. So therefore, they and we know, you know, that they were like a manifestly bad person. So therefore, they must be in hell. The church isn't in that business because the church's job is to proclaim the mercy of God. You look at the the Israelites in the Exodus. Uh, what God was leading them out of was bondage from sin, and what He led them towards was the promised land. Now, along the way, they disobeyed and they suffered the consequences of those disobediences. But but ultimately, God is faithful and God brought them to the promised land. But God led not with not with the stick, but with the carrot, and I think the same is true of of the church. That God's mercy always needs to be front and center. And I know you agree with this, right? Mm-hmm. But God's mercy always needs to be front and center, rather than like preaching hell and brimstone sermons yeah, or homilies absolutely. to just scare people about hell. Um, and I think that the one pro- one one pitfall. I'm not saying Martin does this. One pitfall of the sort of Martin approach is that we sometimes can end up with this triumphalism that privileges ourselves over other people because we're the good ones and they're the bad ones. Mm-hmm. And we, we take seriously the demands of the moral life and they don't take seriously the demands of the moral life. And I think it's better to take the Christian approach, which is simply, as Balthazar points out, to hope that everyone, is, that everyone makes it to heaven. And I think, who do I hate most in this world? And I do, there are people that I hate, and I take this to confession, right? But who do I hate most in the world? Do I want them to be in heaven? Mm-hmm. And the Christian should always, but the Christian should never hate anybody, first of all. But the Christian should always desire that every single person makes it to heaven. Just as uh, God it was does. Catherine. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It was Catherine of um, Siena, I believe. No, it was actually Teresa of Avila, I think, who said, and Balthazar talks about this as well. She said something like, if I could go to heaven in the place of the rest of humanity so that all of them could go to, sorry, if I could go to hell in the place of all humanity so that the rest of humanity could go to heaven, then I would gladly do it. Mm. And like, that is the most Christian attitude that we can possibly have about this. And so emphasizing the emphasizing the path to hell, I think runs this risk of this, again, like triumphalism, where we just think, 
wow, too bad to be in that group that's going to hell. Uh, and I'm glad that I'm in this group. And I know you're not doing that, but I think that's one that's that's one thing that I'm always try to, I always try to be careful yeah. about. Ultimately, I don't know who will be in hell and who will not be. And because we cannot say with any certainty at all that any particular person will be in hell, I think it, logically speaking, we also can't say with any degree of certainty that any person will be in hell, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and I'm not denying that, uh, certainly not denying that, denying that hell is real. And I think, like, you know, probabilistically, hell will not be empty. But I think we do not do well to emphasize um, the sort of population count of hell, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think I think that's important. I definitely would agree that leading with God's mercy is most important. I think that the argument to make that hell is empty is easier to make from a Protestant perspective, because yeah, I think the I one of the greatest, I think the most like, to me the most like substantial debunk of this, and I don't know enough of uh, like I haven't studied apparitions enough to know exactly which ones and when they said it, but I know that Jesus, when appearing to people, and Mary, when appearing to people, have showed them glimpses of hell to saints not just, you know, regular people, but when they've appeared to saints, that their witness to it is that there's people there and that there's a lot of them, you know? And so that's where I feel like I disagree that it is empty. And I just think again, with like the Pascal's wager thing that even if, even if there's like a a 50, 50, right, that it's empty. I think we do, we do no benefit leading with people telling them that like, you need to fear hell. And I think we do no good to people telling them that, Oh, just do whatever you want because you're going to go to heaven regardless. You know, like I think. Yeah, both, totally agree. Both of those things. Yeah. I mean, this is this is why I like I like the Dominican approach. I love the Dominicans, Absolutely. and like they want they want to to make saints on earth. I think that's the path because, like I said, the Christian life looks like the cross. Absolutely. It looks like dying to self for sure and dying for others. And not only that, bro, but have you ever heard? You know, of Saint Teresa of Avila. Saint Teresa of Avila's. She talks about the levels in heaven. And she talked about how, you know, if you knew what just like one rosary or one like avoidance of mortal sin or even an avoidance of menial, venial sin, how much more like how much richer your experience of heaven would be just because you avoided one sin or you made like one extra prayer or daily offering like or daily mass. Like she's like, you would be dying to go do it. Right. One more act of charity. Yeah. How much that changes your eternity. She's like, you would be dying to go do these things and like just to care about people in that way too even if we did all get saved like if there's a you know such a better experience of of heaven you know that awaits us because i think there's different theological approaches to believing that there's levels in in both places right like there's different levels in hell and there's different levels in heaven um dante's inferno yeah uh when we were being catechized before we were catholic we were catechized by an opus dei priest and uh we were talking about this and like the levels of level he didn't say the levels of heaven per se we talked about the levels of happiness in heaven because it is um it is taught in uh in much of catholic theology that there are levels of happiness in heaven like you're just suggesting and we're like just help us help us kind of grasp that father and he said yeah like imagine you have these cups right um you have one cup that's the size of a flea you have another cup that's like the size of a mug and you have another cup that's like a, a giant pitcher you know you if you fill all of those cups up with happiness those cups are totally full of happiness right but the person who has the the flea of happiness, the flea cup of happiness, they're totally full of happiness, but a flea's worth, you know? And the person who has the mug, totally full of happiness, but a mug's worth, and the person who has the so on and so forth. And so everyone is fully happy, completely happy, perfectly happy, but there are varying levels of that perfection in accordance with the, right. the quantity of joy, essentially, yeah. Yeah. Super interesting. What do you think about um, the, the kind of dare we hope like hell is empty and... Uh, 
that that in mind and also thinking about like have you ever read the great divorce i have read parts of the great divorce yeah so like that kind of concept because that the great divorce really like formed me as well in my understanding of you know god doesn't send people to hell but people choose hell for themselves i really like that i agree um not just like it but i believe that that's true and i think that that makes sense and i think that that was something for me that made it very clear and easy to understand that um like some people just like going back to the saint john chrysostom quote some people like would actively choose it, right? And we yep. can kind of think like, oh, who would choose hell over heaven? It's like people choose it every day here on earth. Like life, they're just destroying themselves, right? I was about to make the same point. Yeah, so I totally agree. And that's my probably my favorite part of what I have read of the Great Divorce is uh, we, we, like God, God would God would let these people into heaven in a heartbeat if only they would ask Him, right? But they don't ask Him because they don't they don't actually want it. They can't bring themselves to want it. Yeah. And I was thinking the other day about um, about TikTok and Instagram. Uh, I have neither of those things, but people are so addicted to these. They spend hours and hours and hours of their day on TikTok, and I want to just grip them by the shoulders and shake them and say, like, there's more to life. You need to open your eyes and look around and walk around and enjoy the world around you, but they're stuck looking at their phone, and they, they just get addicted to the, to the dopamine hits that they get from the likes or the colors or the, you know, the, the meme humor, whatever it is, they can't they can't tear themselves away from it. And so they become like these digital slaves to it. The same thing goes for pornography. You know, these people who are uh, wrapped in the depths of a pornography addiction and they could have such, they they could have such a more fulfilling marital relationship or just romantic relationship. If only they would walk away from that, but they won't. So they're like, you know, incels living in their parents' basements addicted to pornography because that to them is what they want and they won't bring themselves to walk away. You know, they're, they're stuck in a metaphorical Plato's cave. They won't walk out and see the actual sunlight because they're just watching the shadows dance on the wall. Uh, and I think that is a great picture of hell. These people who like choose it for themselves will not choose anything different uh, because they're, they're almost in denial about the existence of that thing or they're just so enslaved to, uh, to their addiction for the way they have it now, even though that is just a mere shadow of what it could be. Right. Yeah. Which is, yeah, it's so wild to think about that. The fact that people do actually choose it for themselves. That was, that was so powerful for me to like understand that and then think about it in my own life you know, when you th- think about your own like fallenness, your own brokenness about how we choose that, you know, and we choose sin, even though we know it makes our life worse. Like it's, it's really powerful and really confusing. Does Balthazar ever, does he address things like, like the first thing that came to mind? Well, the first thing that came to mind for me was like where Christ in the gospels talked about, you know, the narrow path and like, why does the road to destruction and many, many choose it. But then also like the parable of um, Lazarus. Lazarus. Yeah. yeah he talks about that. Man. Yeah. What, do you yep. remember anything about like his approach to that? I'm just curious. Yeah, he so he he does he definitely does not shy away from it. I think one thing I really you respect explain about it the way quick? one of us can because I'm sure some people don't know what story we're talking. The book? Um, no. Oh, uh, the, the, the story of Lazarus and uh, and the the rich man. Oh yeah, sure. How about we just read it? I'll pull it up. Um, Dude, let's the, go. Uh, I mean, the cliff the, the cliff notes version is that uh, is that there is a rich man, um, who is suffering in hell. Uh, but before he dies, before both of them die, the rich man was like living his life and vibing, and Lazarus was outside like his his gate of his house, and right. was struggling and suffering and dying. Was and was was begging. So yeah. he's begging outside of the rich man's house, and the rich man basically ignores him while he's there. And then later, the rich man uh, is in hell and uh, gets his comeuppance, shall we say? So here we go. I'm reading from um, Luke chapter 16. Let's go ahead and read the English Standard Version, probably my favorite. 
All right, English Standard Version, here we go. Oh, wait, not quite. Sorry, false alarm, false alarm. <laughs> All right, now English Standard Version, here we go. All right, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. So he's he's going to heaven, obviously. Mm-hmm. Or miraculously to Abraham's bosom, as they would say. That's why it says Abraham's side. Um, the rich man also died. Abraham's bosom, a, a, a pre-resurrection term for the sort of the, the resting place of the just while waiting for... Um, uh, waiting for heaven from Christ. Uh, all right. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none they crossed from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house. This is the rich man now begging this, right? I beg you, Abraham, send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. So that's the parable. Uh, from what I remember of Balthazar, I'll have to go brush up. From what I remember of Balthazar talking about this, he he doesn't dismiss the parables. I mean, the parables obviously of Jesus are are full of incredibly rich uh, spiritual uh, truths, and but he says that this is, I think, uh, like an illustrative parable. It's not Jesus is not recounting a historical fact, as you know, his parables aren't him like telling a story sure. of something that actually happened. But there's there's stories to illustrate a spiritual truth, and in Balthazar's telling, I think the spiritual truth here is basically. Um, a warning, you know, a, a note of admonition um, to um, to repent and believe in the gospel. Uh, so it doesn't, it, per se, it doesn't say anything factually about, uh, you know, this rich man being in hell. But I'm, I'm not like totally persuaded by Balthazar's argument. I just think that it is a more nuanced argument than people often give it credit for. Mm. And what he's not saying is that hell is definitely empty. Um so I always try to like defend Balthazar against that claim because people think that Balthazar is universalist and he's definitely not. He's just, the question he's asking in this extended, and it's really like, an, it's a long essay, but the, the question he's answering is, or trying to answer is, are we allowed to hope that hell is empty? Right. And his answer is, yeah, we can hope that. Uh, we, can ha- we can have some degree of hope for it. The counter argument, which is, you know, basically the Ralph Martin argument and many others, is, you know, uh, to have hope, we have to have, the hope has to be grounded in truth somehow. So we can, we can hope, um, you know, it, it is not a reasonable hope that the sky will be green tomorrow when I wake up, but it is a reasonable hope that Jesus will save me from my sins because uh, that is actually grounded in some sort of truth. And so the counter argument is it's not reasonable to hope that uh, hell will yeah. be saved because we have a mountain of evidence that it will, that, 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 um, that hell will not be empty. So it's not a reasonable hope. Um, yeah. I, I really don't have a, uh, I don't take a sort of dogmatic position on this. I find the debate interesting, but I also find other work more compelling. Right. Um, and so I don't, yeah, I, I honestly don't spend too much time thinking about this, but I do think that Balthazar's book is worth exploring for anybody who's interested in the discussion. Absolutely. And I think the most interesting part that you brought up and really hit home for me is just the reminder of the importance of 
us hoping that everybody who's currently alive does go to heaven and thinking about who's last on your list <laughs> when it comes to the people that you hope go to heaven, that you hope to see there and praying through that and, and experiencing some healing and, and really hoping. And I mean, you mentioned this, you mentioned this story from the view uh, where some hosts compared the plight of black people in America today to um, that of the Jews in world war two. Uh, Hitler is always obviously the extreme example in any, this is Godwin's law right on the internet. The Godwin's law is basically like, you know, within, within a short amount of time, Hitler's going to be invoked on any sort of forum or discussion thread or debate or Facebook yeah. comment. And it, it tends to be true in, in life. Um, but the, like the, the Christian response to even the worst person in humanity. And again, Hitler is like the go-to extreme, right? So the Christians should hope that Hitler will be in heaven. And that's a, that's a really remarkable thing. But, but to to will his good is to hope that he's in heaven, mm-hmm. right? Which is it just it sounds so strange to say out loud. It's really strange cognitively to get to that point. But that is what uh, I think the Christian's obligation is to do: to hope that everyone is in heaven. Um, so then the following question is like: Is that a reasonable hope? And that's where the you know is is there any is there any reasonable hope that hell will be empty? Conversation goes real quick. Also on this this comment of the view, your comment uh, telling me about this view person is it Whoopi or? Someone else in the no, view. No, somebody that. else had made the claim. And I don't know for sure that it was the view. I think I do have some bias no, towards okay. thinking that things like that come from the view. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, well, I was just, I was running on a treadmill today. I was running the treadmill this morning and I'm watching for, not for the first time through. We'll just, I won't tell you how many times I've seen this show, but Silicon Valley, I'm like a major like tech startup nerd. And so Silicon Valley is just a hilarious show to watch. I'm watching this. Gavin Belson is this billionaire figure who's the head of like the Google type company. It's called Hooli, but it's basically Google. And Gavin Belson is uh, being interviewed by real-life journalists Kara Swisher and Walt Mossberg. They have a cameo. And he's, uh, he's, he's basically lamenting the treatment of billionaires in America today and saying, like, I don't get, you know, we make all these jobs, we're titans of industry, and you all treat us with no respect whatsoever. Just get hate. And, then, and, then, and then, like, wait, are you saying that you have it hard as a billionaire in America? And he said, yes, absolutely. There aren't many of us. And, you know, and then he says something like, you know who else went after um, a small band of uh, progressives and uh, bankers and financiers, Hitler. And then they're like, are you comparing the treatment of billionaires today to the treatment of Jews in World War II? And he doubles down. He's like, yes, absolutely. In fact, you could argue that we have it worse, et cetera. Wow. And it's like, it's, it's comedic because it's so beyond the pale, right? Like that's the, that's the point of the illustration. But it's crazy to me. Uh, this is definitely far afield from our is hell empty conversation, but I just, I wanted to tell you this when you mentioned it before. It's crazy to me that that is comedy in, I think that was made in 2015. We're now seven years past that. (laughs) And now it's real. Like people are saying that with a straight face. Uh, and, and no one's, no one's calling them out for it. That's, it's ridiculous, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's wild, man. Truly crazy. But dude, so we, we've gone, you know, well over our hour now at this point, but, um, we we sure. went from starting with political talk to theological debate, which is our two favorite topics to discuss. So I'm yeah. very glad that we got to dive into both of those, man. Thank you so much for for your time today. It was great getting to talk with you. And, and we'll have to do another one again because we didn't really get to dive into you and your wife's conversion stories and stuff. That's true. Yeah, well, happy to happy to come on anytime. Really appreciate you having me on. I love Seeking Excellence. I love what you're doing here, Nate, so keep it up. And if uh, folks want to hear my podcast, come on over, check it out. We're on... Um, wherever you get your podcast, but also YouTube. Most of my episodes have a, you know, correlating YouTube video. Uh, so you're welcome to check but that out today. as well. Creedal. Creedal. Not today. I don't think, we didn't talk about why, right? No, right? we didn't. Yeah, there's no video for this episode because I am too vain to have a video for this episode because I've had this, 
I, yeah, definitely because of pride, uh, which go with before the fall. Uh, hopefully not before my fall, but I have this sty on my eye. It's like a really swollen, ugly looking thing. And I do not want to be seen in public. And I certainly don't want to have a record that lives <laughs> on forever, the internet forever. <laughs> on YouTube servers on the internet forever. So we're just going to have no, you know, no video today. Uh, and part one doesn't have a video because we recorded that in person in an office where we didn't have a camera. So part, this, this episode, one, parts... We'll have a video. <laughs> exactly. There you go. Let's do it. Parts one and two, no video. If you stick around for part three, we'll have a video. For sure. Awesome, man. Well, thank you so much again. This is great. Definitely check out Credo. Um, we'll have obviously all that in the show notes and, and links to that and um, more info where you can find uh, Zach's stuff. So thank you again, man. God bless. Thank you, Nate. Great to be with you.